All right, 60 seconds. class two. Uh, we will be looking at vows four through six today. I think I told you vow to read vows uh, four through nine, so that you have familiarity. Right? Um, is that right? What did I tell you to read through? Say through six. Okay. So good. Well, that's all we're talking about today. So great. I told you the right thing. Yay me. Um, we're going to start with. Uh, let's start. Let's pray. And then let's go into vow four. Father, we thank you again for the ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade. We thank you that we have this Sabbath day to spend together. I ask that you bless us as we consider uh, covenanting together, that you would bless the discussion of the covenant, help us to uh, search the scriptures, see if these things are so, and we pray that you would glorify yourself. For this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so Val 4 is on the doctrine of the Incarnation. So I'm going to read it out loud. Do you believe that the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct beings, or natures, two distinct minds, and yet one Christ forever? And that Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Okay, so what has happened here, we've essentially taken um, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 21 and 22, and we have put them together into a vow to deal with the doctrine of Christ as the Redeemer and to deal with his divine nature and his human nature. So uh, what I want to do is talk about this in a little bit of an overview way and then I'm going to go through word for word what the vow says. And so the important background is in the 400s, the Council of Chalcedon met to discuss the doctrine of the Incarnation. And the principal decision that came out of the debate uh, was about the four knots. Okay, and it's knots not with a K, but knots just N-O-T-S. Okay, the four knots. And so not this, not that, not the other thing, and definitely not that fourth thing. Okay, that's the idea of the four knots. And so the question is, what is that about? We're talking about how is it that Christ is both God and man and how do we deal with the definition of God and the definition of man, which are contradictory. You can't say the same thing is eternal and not eternal. You can't say that the same thing is a spirit without a body and then has a body, right? You can't, you can't do that. So how do, you, how do you avoid contradiction? How do you avoid Christianity being a nonsense religion? And the way is by helping to say, okay, what's 
happening in Christ is there's the divine person, God the Son, and he is a spirit, a mind. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then you've got a human body and soul. Everything is necessary for a human person that is created at a moment in time. And there's a union between this divine mind and this human mind and body. And that union is one Christ. And so that's called the hypostatic union, the personal union. And so you say, okay, well, how does that union work? Does it, does it work by having the divine nature convert into human nature? Does it change? No, Chalcedon says no, it's without conversion, without change. Well, how do we know that's true? Well, the divine nature is unchangeable. So it's not, without, it's not with change. Okay, so how about maybe it's a composition. Maybe you've got like a human body and a divine mind just crammed in there. God in a body, right? And so that is, frankly, how I grew up thinking about Jesus. It's like he's got a human body and he just knows everything. Okay? But then you run into verses like he grew in wisdom. Oh no. And then you run into verses like, only the Father knows, I don't know. And so then your God in the body hypothesis starts to fall apart. And so you go, wait, 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 how do these fit together? And so the classic view of this composition is called Apollinarianism, which essentially is the doctrine that you'll have a human body, and then you've got kind of like human feelings, and then you've got a divine mind. And so you have this kind of triple view of the components of man. But you remember in creation, God takes the dust of the ground and makes the body and breathes the soul of the man, the spirit of the man. And together the union is called a soul, a living soul. Um, so we have to add an extra element of the soul. And normally what you'll do is you kind of take Aristotelian thought. And you'll say something like, well, there's the material nature, and then there's sort of like the animal like instinct element, and then there's the rational nature. And those are the three components of human nature, and we're replacing the rational human nature with the rational divine nature. That's Apollinarianism. So that is, that is false. It's not a composition. There's a full divine nature, and there's a full human nature. Christ is like unto us in every way except without sin. So he has all of the components of humanity. So, okay. What's confusion? I'm confused. Well, when you're confused intellectually, it's because you're blending things, you're fusing things together, and you don't see the distinction of things. And so, confusion, when we're talking about Christ, is there's that the two natures are without confusion. What we're saying is, that the divine nature and the human nature aren't blending, right? So there's not parts, right? So the first one is not, it's without conversion. There's not a changing of God into man. The composition, we're saying, this isn't like, you know, the Power Rangers that form together into some gigantic robot thing and that one of the pieces is divine. We're not saying that. It's a composition. And we're not saying confusion. We're not talking like Hercules, who's, you know, 
100% of them is semi-God and semi-human. Right? We're not talking about confusion. We're not talking about the blending of natures. Okay? So then, there's also not a separation of the natures. And this is the way Roman Catholics and Lutherans tend to interpret the fourth knot creates lots of problems, just enormous amounts of problems. And this is where their sacramentology comes from. Or, perhaps, just perhaps, they try to justify their sacramentology by reinterpreting the fourth knot. And the fourth knot, without separation, sometimes you'll hear that translated as without division. Without division, so there's not a division between the human nature and the divine nature. So they're not mixed, but there's not a separation. There's no division. And so what it sounds like is there's not a human nature and a divine nature. They have to somehow be one nature, but they can't be a mixture of the two. And so you go, what? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. You'd be right, hypothetical you. Good job. Now, the problem is that's not what without separation means. The Westminster Confession does a really great job of translating that. And instead of saying without separation, in order to avoid the confusion, it says that they're united forever. Hopefully that eliminates the ambiguity for you. The without separation or without division is saying there's no point in time in the future where there's going to be a division of the human nature and the divine nature of Christ. So there's a forever union. So the four knots of Chalcedon are Christ is God and man without a change of the divine nature. Christ is God and man without having components of the two natures slapped together without a completion of either or both or one of the natures. And there's not a confusion by a mixing of the two natures. And the union is everlasting. Okay, those are what the four knots of Chalcedon do. And so that hopefully helps to lay some groundwork to make the history of the discussion of the Incarnation a little bit more clear. Um, Now, the major heresies that historically have existed against this view, Arianism is the doctrine that Christ is not eternally God, but that he's created. And there are different kinds of Arianism, ranging from, you know, he's basically God, but he's, you know, somehow, in essence, different from God the Father. Uh, you can, the weak forms of that can be called subordinationism, where you say Christ is subordinate to the Father because his nature is in some way inferior. Uh, to the strong version, which is that he's basically an angel or a created man with special powers. And so that's the DC comic version of Jesus. So those are the ranges of the heretical views of Arianism that exist historically. Now, um, the other one, I mentioned to you, Apollinarianism, which has uh, the, the view of replacing some component of the humanity with divinity. Um, and so then there is historically the the category of Nestorianism. And Nestorianism is classically, Calvinists are always accused of being Nestorians by Lutherans and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox because of their interpretation of separation or division of the natures. They say that there's no separation or division of the natures. And their interpretation is that that's attacking the Calvinist view, which is what I've laid out for you, that there's the divine nature and the human nature, and those are two distinct natures. Now, in the, the history of, of that debate, Lutherans try to preserve a sort of mixing of the natures because they want the 
body of Christ to be omnipresent so that his body can be in, with, under, above the bread and wine. So you have the omnipresence of the body of Christ. That's the Lutheran view. Um, the Roman Catholic view has the same view, except it's only present in the Mass after transubstantiation, which is occurring at a particular point in time. The Lutheran view is more consistent because it says that the body is always omnipresent, and the Roman Catholic view requires some sort of action on the part of human beings to, uh, to make a change so that there's a presence. Um, and that's why you'll end up with Roman Catholics and Lutherans saying that anybody who takes the Lord's Supper, whether they have faith or not, is participating in the body and blood of Christ. So, uh, as opposed to the idea that you only participate in the body and blood of Christ if you have faith, which is the Reformed view. We'll talk more about that when we get to the end of the Westminster Confession, but I wanted to draw a connection for you uh, so that you see how this relates to doctrine down the line in terms of practice. So, the Lutheran and Roman Catholic response to the Calvinistic view is that it's Nestorian. Nestorianism is the view that Christ is two persons and not one person. Now, Nestorius actually cannot be found to have made the claim, there's no writings that are existent, that he said that Christ was not one person. So it's very possible that Cyril of Alexandria, who is famously known for having corrupted the council and having bribed other members of the council in order to bring about a judgment against Nestorius, uh, may have misrepresented Nestorius's view. So perhaps Nestorius actually held the orthodox view, but what his view is presented as, and I don't know that, I don't, but, but my point is, his, the way his Nestorianism is presented is that Christ is not one person. So the hypostatic union, the, sing, the personal union, the word hypostasis is the Greek word. It's hypo is under, and stasis is to stand, to stand under. And so you, the Latin translation would be substance. And the idea of a hypostasis is in Greek theaters, you, you're familiar with the drama masks, the smiling mask for comedy and the frowning mask for tragedy, right? Those masks are called hypostases, okay? And so to wear a hypostasis, you're having a different persona, a different personality for the play. And so the idea that there's a single person, a personality, okay, that is, that there's a union of persons, that's the idea of the hypostatic union. It's the personal union of the two natures. So the, uh, the personal nature of the, sorry, the, the, the personal union of the two natures. So what's a nature? I'm going to pause for a second. I've used the word I've thrown around. I've kind of implicitly hit on it. Does anybody have a definition of what a nature is? Jonathan? God's creation, is that what you said? The meaning of God's creation. That's interesting thought. I'll talk to you more about that later, okay? Thank you for volunteering. Mr. Schaefer? Great. Would you think do you think that, that could also be summarized as a definition? Okay, great. So the set of qualities that differentiate one thing from another thing, or one thing from all other things? A definition. And so a nature, an essence, uh, a 
set of qualities that differentiate one thing from another, the total sum of attributes of the thing, uh, the definition of the thing. Those all mean the same thing. And in theology, we like to use different words because that way it's harder to understand what we're talking about. That's the frustrating part of the history of the church is as opposed to using one term in a way that is um, univocal, what we have to deal with is lots of terms. So explaining those terms feels like this like long game of train building of, of definitions, which can be frustrating. So let me do that for you so you can be frustrated. When we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, we talk about one shared essence of the persons. And an essence is a definition. An essence is a nature, the divine nature, the divine essence, the divine definition. So then we get to the two natures of Christ, and we're talking about two essences, two beings, two definitions. What's a being? A being is the definition of a thing. Okay, so the idea that there's one shared being of the members of the Trinity, but then the second person of the Trinity has a union with another being or nature or essence, human nature, human essence, a human being. And so you go, okay, everything that's necessary there for a person, a human person, body, mind. And you go, okay, everything necessary for a divine person, divine mind, in union together, one person. Anybody have any initial thoughts or concerns about that? Could you repeat it again? I'm sorry. Sure. All of the things necessary for a divine person, all the things necessary for a human person, one person. So, Mrs. Marsh? I don't have a problem with that. Um, I've been trying to wrap my mind around how one person can be in two minds. And I was wondering if maybe if you answer that, if you could fit in the idea of um, same time, same respect or not? Sure, uh, that's great. So how you have one person with two minds. Um, so if a person is a mind and we have a person with two minds, then it seems like we're either referring to person in two senses or we're speaking nonsense. Or you're speaking about two persons. Right, and not one person. Right, so one person, two minds, uh, is either nonsense or we have two definitions of person. Mr. Jones? When you said it the first time, I mean, it sounded like the qualities, it's a, it feels like a contradictory statement in a sense, because the qualities you need to be God is not the qualities a man would have. Right. But I know it's not a why not? <laughs> so we have to figure out, is there another way of understanding this union than just saying that contradictory attributes are applied to the same subject, right? Okay. What's the one term? Um, Lincoln on it. Romanists use it to justify um, transubstantiation. Communicatio idiomatum? Yes. Okay, so... The communication of the attributes, um, the way Lutherans and Roman Catholics talk about the communication of the divine attributes is they say 
the incommunicable attributes of God are communicated to Christ's human nature? No. Oh, okay. False. The incommunicable attributes of God are communicable. Right. What's the problem with that? I don't understand. <laughs> okay. So. so. So, the way, one of the ways I've understood it, try to understand it, is you've got uh, the eternal person, God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. You don't have to say perfect in that because it's redundant. And then you have man, where you would say particularly perfect in uh, being finite, temporal, and changeable, but being perfect in that, the only person ever. So that you know that would help explain the differences between the two persons. Okay. Okay. So we got a human person and a divine person, and and, and those are one person. Yeah, both perfect. Mister yeah. Ryan. So with the resolution of this is that you have you have um, the the human Jesus of Nazareth. Um, human mind, human body, and he took on a divine mind. And so the divine mind and the human mind are, are both there at the same time in mm-hmm. one person, in one legal person. Legal person, that's it. That's right. So there are two ontological persons. You have all of the things you need ontologically for a divine person and all of the things you need ontologically for a human person. What's missing in Christ to make him a human person? Anybody? It's lacking a mind? It's lacking a body? Okay. How about in the divine son, God the son? Is there anything missing there to be a divine person? I'm pretty sure in Val 3 we said he was a person. Okay, so all the things necessary ontologically for a person in his divinity and his humanity, there's a union of them, and the union of the two natures is so that there's a personal union. So they're one person in law. And so the death of Christ in his humanity is the death of God in law. God can't die. Right? God can't die. He dies in law. God doesn't have blood. Acts 20 says that the blood of God was spilled. So this is the communication of the divine attributes. The idea, the communicatio idiomatum is the doctrine that, you, you know how you, you look at sacraments and you can say like, hey, look, this says baptism now saves you, but we're not actually talking about baptism in terms of the water, in terms of it causing salvation. What we're talking about is a way in which baptism relates to the reality that baptism represents but here we're not talking about sign and reality we're talking about two realities the humanity and the divinity and that's the hypostatic union it has similarities to sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified 
but it's the humanity and the divinity of Christ unified as one legal person, even though you have everything that's necessary for a divine person and everything that's necessary for a human person, one legal person. And so we talk about the blood of God. And so one of the things that happened with the story is, is he was not willing to say that Mary was the mother of God. And so what happened in the Chalcedonian councils, people said, well, in the same way that we can talk about the blood of God, we can talk about the mother of God. Mary is the mother of God according to Christ's divine human nature. But, mother, but Mary is not the mother of God in that she did not generate or provide the divine nature of Christ. So only insofar as we can talk about the blood of God, we can in the same way talk about Mary being the mother of God. And so that's the, the thing. So if there's any pushback on that, I'm happy to go into more detail. I'm trying to figure out how much argumentation, how much depth to give on this. But I think one of the great weaknesses of the church is the inability to explain the incarnation. I think this is the explanation. I think this is Calvin's view. I think this is the Westminster Confession's view. But the idea, the confession does not use the language of ontological persons and legal persons. We have tried as a local church to use that language to advance the idea of being able to communicate about the incarnation in a way that's more understandable. And so this is a distinctive in terms of our discussion of the use of that language. There are other people who have done this. John Murray used this language. Gordon Clark used this language. Um, Robert Raymond used this language in his systematic theology. And so this is us uh, trying to use language in terms of the distinction of the category in terms of the hypostatic union being a, a personal union a legal union of persons and to talk about the idea of, of there being everything necessary for a divine person and a human person. Christ is like unto us every way except without sin. He doesn't lack any part of his humanity. So, but the idea of legal person, ontological person. So Could you quickly just define those real quick? Yeah, a legal person is somebody who's counted as a person under law. Okay. Yeah. And a, an ontological person is somebody who has all the components that are necessary for a being to be a person. By definition. Yeah. Okay. So the human nature of Christ is everything that's necessary for the definition of a person, a human person. Mm-hmm. He's not lacking any components of man. And his divinity is not lacking any components of God. God's simple, so <laughs> not components anyways. So, Mr. Jones? You said something like the death of Christ, God does not die, so it was the death of God's law? It's it's the death of the human nature. By Christ dying in his humanity, his divinity is, the value of his death is the value of God dying, the blood of God. But it's not, the divine soul can't die. Right? So like, the divine, what's spiritual death? What's spiritual life? Right, so the knowledge of God is, is eternal life, is everlasting life, spiritual life. Okay, John 17, 3, this is everlasting life. To know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Okay, so the knowledge of God is everlasting life. God can't lose the knowledge of God. Because that's, that's sin. When you don't believe the truth, when you don't believe God, when you don't believe the, the doctrine of God, that's spiritual death. 
And so the whole reason for Christ coming with a human nature is so that he doesn't come as an angel. He doesn't redeem the angels. The only way an angel can die is spiritually. No body. So that means the only way an angel can die is by going from belief to unbelief. If Christ did that, he'd sin. He comes as a man so that he can die in a body without having his spirit die. So humanity exists as having body and soul, having body and spirit, for the purpose of redemption. That's the design. So that there can be death without sin on the part of the one dying. So you said he has the knowledge of God, but he didn't have God's knowledge. His divinity has... So it's, it's asymmetrical. So let me, let me explain what I mean by that. The, the eternal mind of God, the second person, knows all truth. The human mind knows some truth growing perpetually. And so it's asymmetrical unity because God, God the Son in his divine mind knows everything that his human mind knows. And the human mind knows some of what the divine mind knows, but does not believe anything falsely. And so that's the, that's what the human mind has unity with the divine mind in. So he knows, everything he knows is truth. He mm-hmm. doesn't know non-truth, but he doesn't know all truth. His human mind does not know all truth. His human mind grows in wisdom. His divine mind knows all truth. Write down your questions, okay, but we'll talk later. Okay. Okay. So let's look at the language now of the shorter catechism in more detail so we can consider that. Okay. So do you believe that the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, so talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man. Okay? So Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, and he became man. That didn't occur by conversion. right? There's not a changing of the divine nature. It didn't occur by composition. It's not adding parts of the human nature and, and putting a part of the divine nature into that. It's not by confusion. There's no Hercules. And it's inseparable it's forever okay so do you believe that the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct beings now the language of the shorter catechism is natures and I mean the same thing okay the, the idea is we're trying to link the language of the being of God the, you know one essence with the idea of natures, so one essence or nature of the Trinity, and then we have two natures or beings in the hypostatic union. And so there's two distinct minds. Now, historically, there was a debate, and there's people called Coptic Christians, the ones that are in Egypt. Okay, They are what are called monothelites. Okay? The word thelite is Greek for will, and mono is one. Okay? The orthodox position, the, the confessional position, the Calvinistic position, even the Roman Catholic position and the Eastern Orthodox position and the Lutheran position, all of them hold to what's called duothelitism, 
which is two minds, two wills. Okay, so two wills. So we say two distinct minds, there's two wills in Christ. There's the human will and the divine will. And think about this, this is clear in scripture. Christ says, not my will, but yours be done. What is he talking about there? He's saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, the divine mind of Christ doesn't have conflicting desires. If God has conflicting desires, guess what? Star Trek style conflicting timeline problem thing, right? We get, you know, he wants one thing with absolute power, and he wants not that thing with absolute power, and so you've got to have a time travel movie. Right? That's, God is not frustrating himself with his own desires. That would, be him, that would be him not being wise. A wise person has desires and is able to figure out means to accomplish those desires. God is wise and doesn't have any desires that he fails to do. The Psalms says he does all he pleases. Right? He does all he pleases. So he doesn't want to, in his divinity, have the cup pass from him and then also want it to not pass from him. But his human nature does. His human nature has conflicting desires because it's finite. But he shows us in his perfect humanity how our conflicting desires are supposed to be ordered. We use the law of God, so we say what the law of God teaches us, we should put the will of God in terms of the revealed law above our other desires. And so we prioritize desires based upon the law of God, like we were talking about in the sermon today. So the idea here, he has two minds, the human and the divine, and the human mind is um, actually human. And it properly, as a human mind, submits itself to the divine. So, yet this is one Christ. This is one legal person. So the blood of the humanity is counted as the blood of God. And this is true forever. Inseparably. Indivisibly. And Christ, the Son of God, became man not by conversion or composition or confusion. How? The Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body, right, a human body, and a reasonable soul, a human soul. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So there's the virginal conception or virgin birth or whatever you want to refer to it. There's no human father in terms of the um, procreation. Joseph is his human father adoptively, and he inherits the throne of David through Joseph so that he is the adopted son of Joseph, but he has no human father in terms of generation, the biological generation, procreation. So the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Christ. Um, and Christ is born of Mary, and yet without sin. And so the the confession and the catechism talk about the idea of ordinary generation um, and then there's special generation and so this ordinary generation involves a father and so there's the, the, the transfer of Adam's guilt occurs through the human father um, and the transfer of the corruption of nature occurs to the human father and not through the mother and so the virgin birth of Christ 
is a special generation of Christ and not the ordinary generation process. And so he is able to be from the body of David through Mary's line, be the adoptive heir of David's throne, and to avoid the inheriting of Adam's guilt and to avoid the inheriting of a corrupt nature by this structure. So, Mr. Nye? Um, a, a couple questions. Uh, real quick, going back to um, Christ's prayer in the garden, when he's talking about your will be done, uh, it's God's will to be done, he's referring not to God's decreed will, but to his revealed will, like the law, like God's command, or is he referring to both? Well, um, so he is talking about the decretive will. Okay. And what he's struggling with is the revealed will is the prophecy that he is the suffering servant. That's what I was thinking. And he doesn't want that to happen yes. because he doesn't want to suffer, but he wants God to be glorified more than he wants to avoid suffering. Yes. And so he prays that if it's possible for God to be glorified in the same way without his suffering, that that would occur but not his will, but God's decretive will be done. And God's decretive will is the holy council that seeks his glory. And so the point is that the death of Christ is necessary for the showing of mercy while God getting all the glory. Wouldn't it also be referring to the revealed will because, because the prophecy as applied to Christ, like this is, this is what God has, has essentially commanded Christ to do, I believe through through and that's that's revealed through the prophecy to us that that Christ wants to submit to what he's been essentially commanded by the Father to do. I think that's an application that's implicit. I don't think that's the sense of the text. I think the sense of the text is talking about the decretive will of God. Okay, great. And then my next question um, had to do with what you just said before you stop talking. Sure. Maybe you could write these down and so we can so we can focus on the people seeking membership and then we can talk about this more after yeah. if you have any questions. Great. Sure. Mr. Jones? Has any of this changed this relationship since Christ's ascension and now he's sitting on the throne? Has any of this changed? Was this only when he was walking on earth that there was this dual so that's the fourth knot of chalcedon without separation without division without end so so the shorter catechism uses the language of forever the westminster confession uses the language of forever and the point of the fourth knot is there's never an ending to christ's humanity he is our Right, because he, he's our human mediator forever. So the union is theanthropic. It's God-man. Right, but the two natures are distinctly divine or human. The union is God and man. Think about marriage. Is marriage male or female? There's a male in the marriage, and there's a female in the marriage, but you have a legal person in marriage because what you have is 
the formation of a household. And so the legal person, there's a shared estate, and you have a human union of two persons, one's male, one's female. The, you, you get the idea that you could say, you could say, uh, you know, uh, the, the Reese household gave birth. Okay. Uh, you know, th those kinds of things. You, 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 can use, you can see language in other situations and it's more clear. And we think it, it seems harder to get here just because it's more, it feels more abstract. But you can use the same sort of language in other constructs that are more, more familiar. Okay, this is Marsh. <laughs> um, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. So two things. One is, is it? One question is, when we're praying uh, through Christ, is that Christ the human or Christ the divine? Both. Okay. So I'll explain. I'll explain that. Sorry. Maybe did I cut you off? And forgive me. Did you have oh, anything no. else? <laughs> Fine. Um, when um, uh, you know, Christ had conflicting desires, right? Can I? I'm trying to wrap my mind around this uh, two minds, mm -hmm. um, which is the same as two persons. Is it like when when you know part of me wants this and part of me wants that, and you know the flesh and the spirit? Is that a proper analogy that they're different things and so it's not that because so Christ in his humanity without having sinful flesh nature right had desires that were conflicting and so that's because he did not want to suffer but was willing to suffer for a higher goal and so that is because humans by the very definition of finite minds do not have all of the do not have all of the connections of ends and means laid out um, in the way that it would be in a divine mind and so Christ's humanity is not infinite and so is not all knowing does not know when you know when that day is uh, he does not and he grew in wisdom right so so that, that, that finitude in his humanity, though perfect, as Mr. Marsh said, is still finite. And so it has to do with the finitude and the connection of ends and means. I guess I'm just, you know, just be praying about this, bugging my husband at home, but I, I just don't know how one person can think through two minds. Oh, no, well, okay, 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 sorry. So ontologically... So it's not, like there's an, it's not like there's an experience of thinking through two minds. It's not like a third mind that's thinking through two minds. It's, there are, there's, the, there's a legal person, a legal union, and that legal union is not itself a mind. So the legal well, union... But it says here on, last, on the covenant sheet that the terms persons and minds are identical in meaning. That's what's confusing me. Yes. So a mind is an ontological person. And so now the question is, is there a way in which there's a, there's a different kind of person? And the different kind of person is a legal person. So companies are legal persons. Um, a state is a legal person. A church is a legal person. 
a household is a legal person, um, and individual ontological persons are legal persons. So you have entities that have legal responsibility are counted as persons in law. And so the union of the two natures, so there's a human person and a divine person, is counted as one person in law. That may, that may fix it for me. Thank you. Sure thing. Okay. Mr. Jones. Sorry, I have a question. Is soul and spirit, is that the same thing? So here it is. And this is confusing. So there are multiple senses in which the word soul is used. For example, in Genesis, you have the body of Adam and you have the spirit being united to be a living soul. So scripture actually uses the word soul sometimes to refer to the body soul, the body spirit union. The ontological person. Yeah, and so you, so you, you think about like, you know, the way that's used in, in, in English sometimes, especially in like the 18 and 1900s, you'd have like, you know, 103 souls were lost when that ship sunk. And so you use it to refer to the union. Okay, but we can also use the word soul specifically just refer to the spirit, the mind. So That's how we most commonly use it. Did, so God is spirit. Yes. I as a human being, I have a soul, right? You have a spirit. Is it says, okay, so I have a spirit. Did Christ have a spirit? Yes. Outside of the essence of God? Yes. If he just had the divine spirit, the divine mind, that would be Apollinarianism. That would be, he's God in a body. So this is saying he had the spirit of God and the spirit of man. Yes. That's another way. It's a soul and spirit. It is kind of interchangeable in this context. Yes. I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm just trying to no. deal honestly with the history of the different word usages. And that's what makes it so frustrating. I promised you I would frustrate you. And I am trying to deliver. Okay. Okay. So... So my efforts of the footnotes, like that idea of mind and person, I'm trying to disambiguate. <laughs> and even there, it creates the problem because you've got the two senses of the word person. And what I, so I should probably update this to make that word person say ontological person now. But now, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, where's my red pen? <laughs> Okay. Great. Well, I'm going to keep tricking on. So, what's that? Yeah. I just noticed, when you put note two, when it says, Christ the Son of God became man by teaching to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. The phrase taking to oneself is That's good. I think you have a good explanation.
That's good. Thank you. Now, we need to be careful about that. There's another error called adoptionism, which claims that Christ was a man and he was adopted as the son. But that error denies, denies the eternal sonship of the second person. Okay? So you're not saying that, but there's a point of overlap, the idea of taking to self of the humanity, and that is the biblical position, the taking to self. And so the thing is, the reason all these heresies are like have any sort of historical legs is because they sound right at some points. You know? And so that's the heresies are helpful historically. God has planned history so that heresies will exist to make the truth more clear. That's why God predestines heresy, is to show the truth more clearly because of our laziness in not pursuing that. So he, he causes heresies to force the church to be more clear. Okay, so, so great. Um, let's go to any other questions about Val 4? Okay, let's go That's great. The answer is what question four says. Right? So God means a spirit that's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Okay? And my second question is how are there three persons and there's only one God? It's not like it's kind of confusing. That's a really great question. And we talked about it last week, so I'm not going to explain that right now. I'll talk to you when we get home, okay? That's a really great question. Okay? Okay. So, Val 5. Good question, bud. That was good. Okay. Val 5. Uh, the first one's about... So, Val 4 was about the incarnation. Val 5 is about guilt and grace. And there are some footnotes. So, do you believe that, there, that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God. Repent of your sin and believe that God, by grace alone, has pardoned all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in His sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by belief alone. Alright, let's walk through that. So, do you believe that you're guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? The idea here is, do you accept that under the law, you are guilty as a lawbreaker? And do you also accept that you're helpless in terms of your ability to avoid just punishment? That you're, you're helpless in terms of the ability to save yourself. And so you're guilty and helpless as a sinner against God. Do you repent of your sin? Okay, so footnote four, repentance. Ah, a good long text. So what is repentance? Repentance is the turning of the mind. It's the changing of the mind. Repentance unto life is the turning of the mind from unbelief in the saving propositions to belief in the saving propositions. Now those propositions, the saving propositions, that's the gospel. So that's going to be information that's about God 
and God's decrees. So, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, says, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now, the word endeavor there, people, we think about the word endeavor to mean like, and trying real hard. Okay? Endeavor comes from a French word which means to acknowledge obligation. Okay, and we've turned it into this trying real hard. Okay, so that's the historical usage there. Is it's it's an acknowledgement of the obligation in the mind of new obedience. Um, that's this is not saying you have to try hard enough to have saving repentance. Uh, that comes as a gift, your growth in righteousness, but the. Repentance that's initial for justification is the turning of the mind. And then, just like how faith grows throughout your life as a Christian, your repentance grows throughout your life. The Christian life is a life of repentance. You're constantly repenting of falsehoods that you believe, and you are believing new truths. And so sanctification is the process of putting off false beliefs and having true beliefs. So you go from rejecting falsehood to having truth. And so you want to be replacing false propositions with true propositions, and that's what the Holy Spirit does when it illuminates you. And the ordinary means are the means by which we grow in the knowledge of those true propositions and by which we put off the falsehoods. Now, let me pause there and ask if there's any questions. I have more discussion about repentance because repentance is an ambiguous term. And so I'll talk more about it, but are there any questions about that idea of saving of repentance unto life? Yes, Jonathan? Does repentance really mean? Changing of the mind. Okay. So, yeah? What, why would God make us that good? Like, change, change. Because we go, he, he, to show his mercy. So we are, we are sinners in unbelief, in the root sin of not believing the truth. And God causes us to go from believing falsehood to believing truth. And that's him giving spiritual life. Okay? So he turns our minds. Okay. Okay. So, back to the footnote. In the context of church membership, rather than the context of justification before God, outward repentance, so words and actions, are the keys to maintaining fellowship. Right? So, to have right standing with God, you need to believe the truth. To have right standing with people who claim to believe the truth, you need to speak the truth, and you need to do things that accord with the law. So if I run up and smack you and laugh and run away and laugh and laugh again, you might charge me with unrepentant sin, and if I respond by laughing, you'd probably need to bring a second person. If I responded by laughing, you'd probably need to take me before the church court. And if I responded by laughing, you'd need to kick me out because I would not have a credible profession. Right? And so my words and my actions are necessary to maintain fellowship if I sin against you. Hopefully we don't have that as a court case ever. So in the context of church membership, rather than the context of justification before God, Outward repentance, words and actions are the keys to maintaining fellowship. 
Church members cannot read each other's minds. Thus, confrontation about charges of sin between church members must be resolved with words must be resolved with words and actions which are a reflection of the thoughts of the heart. Hypocrites give verbal assent and may act in accordance with mental assent to the scriptures for a time, but hypocrites act and speak as though they give assent with their minds without actually having mental assent to the professed doctrine, and this inconsistency will reveal itself more and more. All believers must go through the process of working out internal inconsistencies, and conflict will result in an increase in internal and external consistency. Conflict pushes us to be more consistent. The objective of discussion is for both parties to possess, increase in, and spread both internal and external repentance by being transformed after the image of Christ through the word and spirit. As the knowledge of God increases, integrity increases. Integrity is a concern for consistency. The church must deal with the external and leave the internal to God and the individual while taking seriously the need to uphold external repentance in its membership. Church, church conflict is never about the secret intentions of people's hearts. If you think, you know, we need a new preacher because that guy's not converted. Okay, great. What words have I said that give evidence of that? And what actions have I taken that give evidence of that? If you just say, I don't think you're converted, those are not grounds to remove me from office. Those are also not grounds to remove a person from church membership. What duty was failed to be done? What sin was committed in word or deed? That is what church membership conflict is about. The heart cannot be read by men, except for your own heart. So, when there are things that are ambiguous, we have to have the judgment of charity and assume that things are not sinful, and there has to be a burden of evidence to show, show that something is sinful. What does the Bible say, and what evidence do I have to suggest this action was an action that violates the law of God? So, comments, questions, objections about this discussion of repentance in terms of the internal and the external? Mr. Marsh. So, uh, in defining sin, you're talking about unbelief, rooted in unbelief. Um, I'm not sure, 100% sure where you are on this, but would it be maybe a good idea to kind of expand upon that as far as um, being able to people can understand the outworkings of unbelief and understanding that there's instead of God being the good and all of God you have another good in place and by pursuing that without realizing it's there your fruit sin is there because you think that's the good because you have a different good and you're doing what you think is right and justifying your sin because you think it's right because you don't have a proper understanding. And so there's unbelief mixed with belief. There's that admixture necessary. Right. So, because um, 
for me, that was really helpful when I came to understand that and, and to start internalizing that. Sure. So I think what you just said was seeing how when you understand who God is, that you are going to be confronted with how the denial of that is incoherent. Like when you understand the meaning of the definition of God, the denial of God is incoherent. And you begin to see that your view of the good, the highest good, the most valuable thing, the thing for which you trade all other things and that you should not trade it for anything, that when you see God is that, that you begin to see that you have inconsistent views about what's good and your incoherence internally causes all the fruit sin and when you realize that the work of cultivating your soul to be more consistent becomes something that you see how it's useful and it begins to result in pruning off of sins and a more consistent bearing of fruit of righteousness is that a restatement of what you just said great so i think we're in total agreement that sounds great i like the way you said it it seems like you like the way i said it Good times. <laughs> okay. Good. Mr. Jones. And in essence, aren't we all, when it's speaking of hypocrites, is that kind of speaking to immaturity? So hypocrite is the same is the same root as um, as uh, hypostasis. Hippo, hippo, uh, the under. Okay. So the the uh, a hypostasis is you know you have the the, uh, um, the the persona itself, the mask itself, is a hypostasis. The actor, the play actor on the stage, is a hypocrite, and he wears a hypostasis, and so he's wearing a mask. And so the idea of a hypocrite is one who is putting on a mask that he he is self-aware. Of the, of the mask. And so uh, there are people who make false professions and don't know, and so we can use the word hypocrite for that, um, but the way the, the insult, you're a hypocrite, is normally intended, is you are knowingly wearing a mask that you do not actually think you are the person you're pretending to be that you are trying to deceive others for some motive. So this is speaking to like intentional deception? Yeah. Now, hypocrite, when we talk about the church, we normally talk about those who are aware and those who are not aware. So they could be self-deceived, and they could be play-acting for themselves. Um, so but that's the origin of the word hypocrite. And so when people say, you're a hypocrite, what they mean is, you think this thing is bad and you yourself do it. What the term historically has meant is either someone who is self-deceived or someone who is deceiving others intentionally. Okay. So by me saying, I believe the Bible, ten minutes later I sin, well, you're a hypocrite. You said you believe that and you're not doing it. That's not what you're doing. Right. That's, and, yeah, so that's, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm saying... Uh, well, also people who think they're believers who aren't. So somebody comes in here and they think, yeah, I, I agree, I believe the gospel and all that kind of stuff, and then 
they start to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And they say, no, 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 you, the way you understand it is wrong. The Bible teaches that, that the three persons of the Trinity are just different modes. And really, you know, the reason the Son died on the cross is because whenever we're talking about certain kinds of actions, that's the Son. He says modalism. So that, that person thinks they've got the true gospel, and they've redefined God. And if they won't repent when they're shown the Bible that contradicts that, then they have shown their profession to be false. Uh, whether they had intention of deceiving us or not, they would be a false professor, a hypocrite. And that's the way it's been used in kind of church history. But it also includes the intentional liar who comes in as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Okay, then, great, moving on from repentance. So do you believe that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? Repent of your sin. What sin? Footnote 5. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Okay, so that means you can replace the word want with lack. Okay, so a lack of conforming to the law of God and also a transgressing of the law of God. Either one is sin. So if you fail to do a positive duty, that's a sin of omission. You fail to do something. If you do something that's wrong, that's a sin of commission. You've gone beyond what's allowed. You've done something that's forbidden. Now, when we repent of sin in the above vow, we're repenting of, first and foremost, um, original sin, so root sin, uh, being a part of that, and then also our particular sins, the actual transgressions that proceed from original sin. So original sin includes a legal guilt where Adam sinned and we were counted guilty. He's a representative and his actions are counted to us in law. If you don't like that, then you also should not like the idea of Christ dying in our place and you should also not like the idea of Christ providing a righteousness for us by his actions. And so they are a whole. They fit together. You can't deny one part of it without rejecting the legal structure as a whole. So original sin also includes the lack of, the want of, original righteousness, that we're not counted as righteous at the moment of our conception. And the original sin includes the corruption of the whole nature, which at root, the corruption of the whole nature comes down to not understanding properly and not believing what God has revealed. And so you don't understand and therefore do not believe. When you understand properly and there's a properly formed view of God, the idea of, of denying God requires insanity when you have the definition properly in mind. And so the corruption of the whole nature comes down to unbelief, as we just talked about, the, the way that Mr. Marsh just explained it and that I tried to repeat back, um, that root sin of not believing truth. And so that, the, that set of original sin, together with actual transgressions that proceed out of that corrupted nature, those are the sins that we're repenting of. So original sin and actual transgressions.
Questions about the meaning of sin? Great. So, do you believe that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? Repent of your sin. Actually, what's your question, Jonathan? What's your question? Substance. We'll talk about that later. Let me talk about the Trinity. Okay? Good question. Do you believe that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? Repent of your sin and believe that God, by grace alone, has pardoned all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in his sight. Only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by belief alone. Okay, let's look at grace. What is grace? Footnote 6. The grace of God is the mercy of God. Grace is an attitude in a mind. Grace is an attitude of favor, not an attitude of disfavor. Grace is unmerited favor. It's not merited favor. In fact, grace is not just unmerited favor, but in the context of Scripture, we can more accurately and fully say that grace is demerited favor. Grace is favor given despite the meriting of disfavor. The grace of God leads to the basic question, how can God be both just and the justifier of the wicked? So, any questions about what is meant by grace? Okay. Joshua? Okay, great. Okay. So, has pardoned all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by belief alone. Imputation. Footnote 7. Imputation is a legal, business, and accounting term that relates to the transfer of credits and debits into and out of accounts. The gospel is the good news about the great exchange. The exchange of the sins of God's people for the righteousness of Christ. In the gospel, we are taught that Christ paid for all of the guilt, debits, of his people by transferring their debits to his own account and making full payment for their debits, thus fully satisfying the demands of God's justice in accordance with his law. Similarly, Christ's fully merited reward by his meritorious fulfillment of the law of God. Christ's merit credits, were transferred, imputed, to the account of his people. Thus the people of God are seen as both innocent and righteous under the law of God. So any questions about the imputation of our sin to Christ and of Christ's righteousness to us? Okay, this is the heart of the gospel. If you don't understand the imputation, please do follow up. Yes, Jonathan? Imputation? Well, it's in the book of Romans, and it's also back in Genesis that God credited Abraham with righteousness. Okay, and so you can find it in many places in the Bible, but it's even all the way back in Genesis. Okay? Okay. Now, this imputation is 
received by belief alone. Footnote 8. The terms belief and faith are identical in meaning. Faith, belief, is mental assent to one or more propositions. Saving faith or saving belief is mental assent to the saving propositions. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 86, says, Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation, as He is offered to us in the Gospel. In the Gospel, Christ is offered to us in propositional form. Compare Westminster, or sorry, compare membership question 4 with Shorter Catechism, question 33, which is on justification. So that's homework. Okay, so questions about belief or faith? Mr. Jones? So when talking before, you said that faith is passive because it is a gift from God. In justification, yes. And in sanctification, it's active. So the mental assent is a work that we do? You believe, you assent, you do not believe by your own power. You are given belief. You are given assent. So you do it, but it's given to you. So if I did it and it wasn't given to me, I would never assent? So, yeah, it's impossible because of the deadness of human nature, because of total depravity, we will never, apart from regeneration, believe the gospel. There is nothing good in us to cause us to do the most root, foundational, basic good, which is choosing the good, believing the good. So we're responsible, though, for trying to understand or trying to gain the knowledge of this doctrine, but the Holy Spirit is what gives us the actual understanding Yes, so Adam, before the fall, had a good nature and was spiritually alive. He had original righteousness. And he was, uh, he became spiritually dead. And then his progeny, by ordinary generation, are spiritually dead. Okay, then, thou six... This is the triple obligation um, and the idea of glorifying God as the goal of the Christian life in the condition of forgiven status, in grace. So, do you believe that because God is the Lord, your God, and your Redeemer, there's the triple obligation, having saved you from your sin by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone, that the only reasonable response to God's authority and mercy is to live your life as an acceptable sacrifice to God, sounds familiar, seeking to glorify Him in the whole of life by knowing the truth, acting according to the knowledge of the truth, and spreading the knowledge of the truth, all out of gratitude for the grace of God given to you. So, when you understand God and your obligation, the idea that he's Lord has to do with the fact that he has authority over all things. He's the maker of all things. The fact that he's your God has to do with the fact that you are in a covenantal condition, that you are under the oracles and ordinances of God. So those who are 
a part of the visible church. Those who are baptized, those that were circumcised in the Old Testament, they're part of the visible church. And then the idea that he's your redeemer means not only that you're in the visible covenant, but that the covenant's in you, that you actually have faith. If you have faith, he's one, he's, he's redeemed you. And so the idea that he's the creator God who owns everything, he has a special ownership claim because of the covenant, and then he has another special ownership claim because he bought you, right? That's the triple obligation. You have a duty to obey God for those three reasons. The fact that he's God, the fact that he's your covenant God, and the fact that he's your redeemer. So that gives a triple motivation. And so the one that differentiates the saved from the not saved is the fact that we are actually saved. (laughs) And that makes it so that we should, out of gratitude, seek to glorify him. And there's the three ways that we apply that and those could be actually broken down into two, which is what should you believe and how should you live. But spreading is an intentional effort to communicate the truth. And so the idea of the mouth and the hands, you know, the, the, the actions and the profession, broken that out. And so that's the idea of how you glorify God. So any comments or questions? Um, yeah, any comments or questions about Thou Six? The other two were apparently more difficult to understand. So, great. Then, so you guys read questions 12 to 38. So, what we have in those questions is we have the doctrine of the incarnation. And we also have, uh, you look at question 12, the covenant of works. Right, God promised life to Adam for obedience and death for disobedience. Um, we have the guilt of Adam through that covenant. Question 13 talks about the sin of our first parents. And he talks about them being left to the freedom of their own will. It's important to understand that question 13 does not contradict question 7 or 11. Question 7 and 11 talk about God predestining everything. And question 13 talks about the freedom of the will. Adam and Eve did not have freedom from the decrees of God. They had the ability to do good or evil, and God decreed what would happen. And they did good until they did evil. And so that's what's being talked about. That's called Augustinian freedom, the idea that there are four conditions of man in history. And those are before the fall, man could sin or not. After the fall, man can only sin. After regeneration, man sins but can also do good. And after the glorified state, in the glorified state, man can only do good. And that's the most free state. That's the Augustinian view of freedom, being free from evil and having the power to do what is good is the most free. And so when you are not going to, not able, not willing to do evil, then you are the most free. So question 14 defines sin. We already talked about that. 15... um, talks about the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, being the sin that was committed, and that's rooted in unbelief, right? The Adam fails to prophesy properly to his wife. His wife does not believe the word of God. Adam chooses Eve over God and makes her an idol, right? And so you have 
these sins of unbelief and they result in the outward action of the eating of the fruit. Um, 16, Adam represents all of mankind except for Christ. 17, the state of sin and misery is introduced from the fall. 18, talks about the sinfulness, which we talked about in the definition of sin. 19, talks about the misery, the loss of communion with God, the wrath and curse of God, all the miseries of this life, death itself, and the pains of hell forever. Sounds like something worth escaping. 20, talks about um, how God did not leave everyone to die, but has sent a Redeemer. 21, talks about Christ being the only Redeemer. And then we have um, the Incarnation in 22. Uh, so 21 and 22 are that. Yes, Jonathan, you had a question? Um, how does God control us? That's a good question. He controls our desires by controlling what we think. And we always choose what we want. We choose what we most want. And so God controls what we understand and we make choices based upon our understanding controlling what we value and what we most desire. That makes sense? Yeah. Great. 23 talks about the offices of Christ as Redeemer. The name Christ means anointed. He's anointed for the triple office. Prophets are anointed. Priests are anointed. Kings are anointed. He's anointed for the triple office. He's empowered for the triple office. And then he talks about the office of prophet and revealing truth to us, correcting our errors. Uh, the Shorter Catechism talks about the priesthood of Christ where he intercedes for us. He's our mediator legally. And um, in his divinity, knows our prayers, reveals those uh, to the humanity and the union of Christ. He, uh, there is a role of the humanity and the divinity in Christ uh, acting as our mediator and high priest in prayer. And so there is uh, Christ in his humanity sacrificed himself to die to make a satisfaction for divine justice and reconcile us to God. And um, question 26 talks about uh, Christ as a king, ruling us, subduing us to himself, defending us, restraining and conquering all of his enemies and all of our enemies. Um, 27, Christ's humiliation. Uh, he's you know born as a human being, made under the law, poor, suffers miseries, suffers the wrath of God, not in the sense of God hating him, but in the sense of the, the curse of God coming onto him, which is, uh, we're using wrath there. God's attitudes don't change. God doesn't go from loving Christ to hating Christ. This is talking about the wrath in terms of the curse. And so that's the language that's used in scripture is this idea of the wrath of God, um, but God does not, God the Father does not hate God the Son. God the Father does not hate the human nature of Jesus Christ. His attitudes do not change. And so it's the curse which is what's owed to those who are under the wrath of God. And so he makes it so that we are not under the wrath of God. And another thing is human beings who are elect are never under the wrath of God. They're under the curse, but they're saved from the wrath of God by Christ. And they are elect. God always knew who he was going to save. He always planned to save them. He never hated them. He always loved them, even before he converted them. 
That's why he converts them. So the immutability of God is powerful for our assurance of salvation, and we need to be consistent in it and not make coherent, incoherent problems there. Um, Christ uh, suffered the cursed death on the cross to satisfy the divine wrath, the hatred for evil. And he was buried, and he continued under the power of death for a time. That's the humiliation. The exaltation of Christ involves his resurrection and his ascension, his sitting on the throne, so he is in his millennial reign, his kingdom, and he will return to judge. He will resurrect, and he will judge on the last great day. And so that's the exalted condition of Christ in his kingship and his prophetic office and in his high priestly office having completed the sacrifice. Now, any questions about that before I move on to the last section of the Shorter Catechism for today? Jonathan? guilty. If you're in the law, you're counted as guilty. That means you're counted as having done something wrong. You can also feel guilty because you think you've done something wrong. Okay? Great. All right. Uh, 29. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Um, The Holy Spirit effectually calls us. And um, how does the Holy Spirit, 30, uh, apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ, he gives us faith. He applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. That union is twofold. It's the intellectual union and there's a legal union because the faith itself is the instrument that connects us to those benefits. So uh, a contract, the signature on a contract, that's the instrument that connects to all of the promises of the contract. So faith is the instrument. Um, 31, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the Holy Spirit causing us to understand and believe that we are sinful and miserable, causing us to understand um, and believe that Christ is who he claims to be um, causing our wills to be able to choose what is good and persuading us and empowering us to in, to believe to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel what's the gospel? the gospel's doctrine so we, we embrace Christ in that in the doctrine in the gospel so by believing you are embracing Christ and so this Effectual calling is the work of the Spirit to give us faith. 32, what are the benefits that come from that? Justification, adoption, sanctification, and a bunch of other benefits. There's an etc. clause. Justification, question 33 is a key question. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That probably sounds like something we went through in detail as we did. What's adoption? Adoption is two things. It's the legal status of being a son, and it's the possession of the inheritance. 35, what's sanctification? Sanctification is 
God giving us faith and then growing our faith. 36, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits are... Thank you. The benefits are assurance of salvation, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of sanctification and gifting, and perseverance in salvation to the end. Notice perseverance is not a condition of the covenant. It's a benefit. Thirty-seven, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Well, we're made perfect in holiness. We immediately pass into glory. And we have our bodies still united to us, but they're waiting for the resurrection. Thirty-eight, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Well, our bodies are resurrected and raised up into glory. We are openly acknowledged by Christ and we're openly acquitted in the day of judgment. And we are made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. So we grow forever in the knowledge of God. The acceleration of the rate of knowing more about God is the joy-inducing center of the next life. So if you don't like learning about God now, what makes you think you're going to enjoy heaven or the resurrected state? So, Mr. Jones. I know it's late, so, uh, but you slid something in right at the last second on number 36, perseverance, uh, they ran to the end. Because uh, uh, traditionally, with Calvinism and Tulip, I understood that perseverance of the saints meant they, it was a requirement to persevere yeah. So if you read if you read the Synod of Dort, the the which is where the five points of Calvinism come from in response to Arminianism, Arminianism asserted that you could be saved and then lose your salvation because you could go from believing to unbelieving, and the response of the Synod of Dort was to say that perseverance in faith is because of the Holy Spirit preserving you in faith. And so it's not a condition that you have to continue believing. If you believe, you will continue to believe. And that's the way the Shorter Catechism refers to it. It talks about it as a benefit of effectual calling. It doesn't talk about it as a requirement to determine if you actually have effectual calling. Without, without perseverance of the saints, without the pres- preservation of the saints, there is no assurance of salvation. Because today maybe I believe and tomorrow maybe I won't. Yeah, if you if you have if you understand the true gospel and believe it to be true, you will always believe it to be true. And then if you fall away, you never had a proper understanding, you never really believed it. You never fell away from an understanding, you never had the understanding. Yeah, so the way you make your calling and election sure is by studying the Bible and making sure you believe what the gospel actually says. So whenever you have doubts about your salvation, the first thing you should do is pick up your Bible and start studying and considering the doctrine thereof. Do you understand it? Is it true? The degree to which you're certain you understand it and that it is true is the degree to which you have certainty you are saved. Okay. Great. Then next time... We will be going over vows 7 through 9, which is a detailed explanation of uh, 
of knowing God or knowing the truth, acting according to the knowledge of the truth and spreading the knowledge of the truth. And look at the Ten Commandments in the Shorter Catechism, 39 to 81. Uh, did anybody have any objections or questions that they wrote down from the homework last time? I have a question, but I'll save it for next Everybody's free to go. If you want to ask it now, you're welcome to ask it, and we can keep talking about it, and other people can leave if they want to leave. Yes, Jonathan? The word church comes from the Greek word kuriake uh, and kurios, which means Lord. So a church is an assembly of the Lord. Okay? So what does church mean? Very good. Mr. Schaefer? So a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. It's a bond. It's established by swearing, so oaths. It's a bond in blood. It's a life or death matter. Blood represents life. So it's, it's a life or death matter. So um, it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered. It's defined by God. So it's a contract that's made by swearing that has life or death consequences, and God's the one who made the terms of the contract. That's what a covenant is. You can covenant in marriage, Parties agree to form a marriage, but they don't get to define what marriage is. Whatever Ogerfeld or Obergefeld or Burger Burger, whatever it is, whatever the court says, it doesn't matter. God's right, they're wrong. The other thing is you can form a covenant to form a nation, okay, or a state. And you can do that with a local church. God defines what a state is, God defines what a church is, God defines what a marriage is. And so when you join one of those covenantal entities, one of those entities established by God's law and which membership is formed by swearing, that is what covenanting is. So when people are baptized, that's a symbol. It's like signing a covenant. It's, it's used to represent covenanting. And the Lord's Supper is a renewing of those obligations. In marriage, sexuality is the sign of the covenant. And sex in marriage renews the covenant. right? And so in the state the idea of people entering office, the idea of voting, the idea of the administration of penalties, um, those are things that are covenantal actions um, and they have to do with the administration of that covenant. Um, so the sword is the principal sign of that covenant. Okay, so um, does that answer the question? Do you want me to explain? I guess, oh, so an oath is swearing, okay? Uh, a promissory oath is an oath where you are promising to do something. So normally you're swearing this is true, right? Or you're swearing I will do this. It's a promissory oath. And then the last one, a vow, is a promissory oath to God. And so those are all covenanting. Covenanting is whenever you swear something uh, with a promissory element. So promissory oaths and vows are covenanting. Um, swearing that something is true I think may also be covenanting. I need to double, I need to check on that. I think I think it is also because you could like make profession, and so that would constitute a sort of covenanting. And so you'd be swearing that something is true. 
like the Bible. So I think that I think that any swearing is an act of covenanting. Okay. So this if the covenant is in blood, life or death matter, would that be why some churches, if they believe you've broken your covenant, will treat you as dead? Yes, and I think that if you if somebody does break covenant, right? So you think about in marriage, divorce, the person is dead in the marriage. And you think about in a church with the casting out of a person, they are dead in the covenant. And in the state, if somebody has committed a capital crime, they're dead in the covenant. So where, where does the treating you as dead stop? Like, you know, a shun? It's mm-hmm. like you're not even there. Uh, well, you don't, you don't act like somebody's not there. You call them to repent. Um, and so the idea of... of there's a limit to how much time somebody should spend pursuing something. And in general, in an argument, for example, where somebody is a heretic, let's just take heresy because that's the most complex one typically. You're going to have, you, you have to walk through all the arguments and if you're going to deal with somebody who's a heretic, you have to prove that they have said a thing and you have to prove that it is contrary to the Bible. And then you need to... Um, you ask them to repent. And they're asking for repentance is as public as the teaching. And then if the person refuses to repent, we are obligated to go through the process of that proof at least twice before cutting somebody off and at a maximum of three times. Right? So God gives us a two or three range and that relates in part to the idea of two or three witnesses. And so you have made witness to them two or three times um, in that process. So then if you saw somebody again after that, you wouldn't go through the process of continuously relitigating the case with them, but you would tell them, you know, you need to repent of this, and you could do business with them, and um, you could interact with them in other kind of public ways, and they can come to the public assembly to hear the preaching. Um, and so those are, that's historically how cast out people have been dealt with. You do not interact with them in a fellowshipping way. You do not have casual engagement with them. You don't spend time together in a way that is anything other than the performance of necessary duties, uh, business type function, or seeking to bring them to repentance. Any, anything else about that as a follow up? Okay. And Jonathan, and again, everybody's free to go, so thanks for sticking around. Jonathan, what was your question? Yeah, so God plans that sin would happen, and people, creatures, angels, and men don't believe some truth, and then also choose evil actions out of that. That makes sense? Okay.